We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. You guys ever listen to the pre-worship music? I don't, there was music just playing. Did any, how many of you just, just curiosity, you knew there was music, there, there was music playing just a second ago. Okay, there was just music, music playing. You don't know how bad sometimes, it was actually Waymaker was the song that was playing. I'd love to just be able to jump in there and just fire that off and get y'all's attention, but I thought y'all'd probably run for the hills, so I'm glad that you're, uh, I'm really glad that you're here tonight, though. Um, you got to keep a sense of humor. You have got to keep a sense of humor. I believe that cheerfulness is from God. I believe that God tells us to be joyful, and so you've got to keep a sense of humor. And one of the best ways to keep a sense of humor is to be able to laugh at yourself and to keep children around. You've got to keep kids around because kids will not only keep you young, but they will keep you humble. Um, they will keep you humble. So it seems like every Wednesday night, that's one of the reasons I love Wednesday night church because I get to have conversations. Where else are you going to go that you can have a great conversation with somebody that's 90 and somebody that's six within three minutes of each other? I mean, and that's one of the reasons, and, and this, is, this is just a philosophy of ministry that we have at First Baptist Summit. It's one of the reasons that at four years old, we want the children in worship service with us. It's one of the reasons why we love fellowship meals. It's one of the reasons why we want this to be an all-age group ministry. We don't want an all-young church, and we don't want an all-old church. We believe that intergenerational ministry is hugely important. And so one of the things that happened tonight, I'll share, this, is, this isn't a 30-minute-old story. This is just fantastic. So I'm walking across the parking lot. I went to put something in the car, and I'm coming back. And uh, one of our kids is, uh, I, think he's, I think he's seven. And uh, his grandmother says, Brother Larry, Brother Larry, you got a minute? And, sure. And so I walk over, and it's homecoming week, in case any of you didn't realize that. We've got homecoming week at a couple of our area schools going on this week. My yard is completely filled with toilet paper uh, right now. Uh, it is every weekend, but right now it is that way. And so they have dress-up days, right? So every day, you know, is a different day. You dress up like a certain character or a movie or a decade, or sometimes some years you'll have camo week or, or camo day or school spirit day or whatever that is. So she says, uh, come here just a minute. So I walk over and lean down. And she said, uh, well, tell him, tell him what you're going to be tomorrow at school. Tell him what you're dressing up as. So he's kind of getting quiet. And she, he said, well, tell him what to do, tomorrow is. And she said, it, he said, it's old people day. And I said, <laughs> okay, so so it's old, old people day tomorrow, tomorrow at school. I said, oh, that's great. And he said, I'm dressing up like you, Brother Larry. <laughs> they got him a suit. He's, he, he said, but he wasn't wearing a tie. He was just gonna, he's, but he's going to wear a suit. And I asked him, I said, you going to shave, shave your head? He said, no, sir. I said, they're not going to know it's you. But that was a humbling thing because I, I don't know how many of you are this way. I am 43, but I feel great. Like, I mean, I may not tonight, but I don't feel 43. I don't think of myself as 43. I feel like I, I, feel like I should be 27. 27 is kind of where I've 
still kind of, that's, that's where I feel like I ought to be. And then somebody tells you they're going to dress up like you for old people day. And it just has a way of kind of, kind of bringing you back, bringing you back to reality. So if you're having a bad day today, or it's been a rough day today, maybe at least a child didn't tell you they were dressing up like you for old people day at school tomorrow. So I'm glad you're here uh, tonight. I'm hoping you're having a great, a great week. Um, can I just, y'all, y'all just look at me real quick. I have to remind you guys of this some, sometimes. Tonight, I need to just put out a fair warning. Um, you got to listen fast tonight. I mean, you have got to listen fast. You're full of corn dogs, you, and I know that, and so that makes it difficult right now. But we have a lot of ground to cover. Um, in fact, if we weren't on a little bit of a schedule, I actually would have probably taken the 17th and 18th century and maybe have broken them up into three or four weeks instead of trying to do this in one week. So tonight, we're going to do it a little bit like we did last week, but I've kind of put this together almost like if you were going to take a vocabulary test, and that vocabulary being some major players from the 17th and 18th century. Some things that happened with certain people that were major things in church history and in turn world history. So as we walk through some of these things together, I think we're going to do our very best in the limited amount of time we have, not only to point out who they are and what they did, but I'm going to do my dead level best to help us see why, how that is affected even today, what happened with them then and how important that is even now. So as we walk through this together, um, you just you listen fast, I'm going to speak fast, and we're going to learn fast, and we're going to pray that God gives us the ability to comprehend well. Um, so let, let's, start off, let's start off together, and the first one we start off with is not one that maybe a lot of church history books necessarily would have, but what you see is the first name there is a guy by the name of Galileo. Now, Galileo um, was not, he was not only a Christian, but he was also an astronomer, and he dared to hold the notion that the earth revolved around the sun. You see, Everyone in that day believed that the earth was the center of everything. Not only that, but a lot of them still believed it was flat, all right? So he begins to de develop some convictions. He believed, de develop some scientific, specific things that he began to acknowledge, and especially about the fact that the earth revolved around the sun, not the sun around the earth. Do you know it was not until 1992 after NASA sent the Galileo spacecraft, any of you in here old enough to remember the 1992 Galileo spacecraft, when they sent it into orbit, it was only then that the Roman Catholic Church acknowledged their errors when his trial when they condemned Galileo as a heretic. It is amazing that even now, I'm still, you begin to see that, the, did, did you, you may know this. There are actually people that still belong to flat earth societies. Have you heard of this? Um, there are people that when it comes to understanding what the Bible teaches, not only about what the Bible teaches, but basic physics and astronomy, um, science in general, there is a misguided notion, and Galileo understood this all the way back in the 17th century, and we need to understand this today. We had a group of ladies that recently got back from going to the ark and from having gone to the ark. What we now, uh, what we know, what, that, what it shows us there, it's a great, the Creation Museum, all that goes along with that, is that if we study science, and that is any, any realm of science, that science does not stand opposed to the Bible. Science does not stand opposed to theology. 
What Galileo believed was that if we understood science, that science was just a way of helping us to understand some of the things that God had created. Um, when we talk about the, the theory of relativity, when we talk about gravity, when we understand the tides, when we understand the biology of life, those are not things that supersede religion, but should be subsequent to that. So that was an important scientific breakthrough and a stance that Galileo took. And so flowing from his life, we flow into another gentleman by the name of King James. Now, we don't have all the time in the world to talk about all the things that King James did. He was actually, um, there are a lot of negative things that we could talk about from his reign and his rule. But the greatest accomplishment of his life was a publication that it still exists today known as the King James Bible. Um, people still use it, originally authorized in 1611. And we know that from that King James translation that many people began to get the Word of God, the English translation of the Word of God. And we, it was also at a time where the Bible, not long after that, would much would be easily distributed. We will talk about more about Gutenberg and the printing press. But when we talk about science, you had to be able, you have to be able to make paper, you have to be able to make ink, you have to be able to print to have widely distributed copies of things. But having the King James Bible readily available was a translation that the people could read, then it could be mass-produced. Now, today, sometimes even, I think this is jump to today, when we talk about Bible translation, and we could spend an entire night on understanding Bible translation, um, the hermeneutics behind how you translate specific, uh, specific text. There are still groups of people, especially in rural areas, and you'll see this from time to time, that are King James only. Like, they, we aren't going to read or use anything but the King James Bible. So the question then remains, how do we know or how do we decide what translation we're going to use? The first thing that you need to understand is that whether it is the NASB, whether it's the ESV, whether it's the KJV, whether it's a New Living, whatever translation it is, it is a translation. What does translation mean? It means that you are not reading the original autograph in the original language. So we know that the Bible was translated from three different languages. It was translated from Hebrew, from Aramaic, and from Greek, primarily from Hebrew and from Greek. So if you're going to translate something from any language, if you're going to go from English to French, if you're going to go from Spanish to English, if you're going to go from Hebrew to English, if you're going to go from Greek to English, you have to make some choices. And so when, when, I, when people say, well, I want a word-for-word -word translation, well, the difficulty with that is that sometimes in languages, it may take three words to, to come up with what we would use one word for. Or it may take us three or four words to come up with one word in another language. Not to mention that even if all you talked about was sentence structure, that languages are not all built on the, in the same sentence structure. So not where nouns and verbs goes and direct objects and prepositions and how those are built is different from 
from language to language. So you actually could not go from straight one to straight the other in a word-for-word translation, or you would get something, and if you've never seen one of these, it would probably fascinate you because they make these. Something that would look like what's called an interlinear. If you've ever heard of that, it's a Bible study tool, and you can buy an interlinear. And what the interlinear has is you will have the literal Hebrew text and the literal Greek text, and above those words will be the English translation of those words. I would challenge anyone that looks at that, that if you try to read that, you will realize, I can't even make sense of this sentence because it's the word order, the structure is not in, the, not in a way that in English makes sense. So you have to put a committee together or a team of scholars that have to not only be able to translate from the original languages, but they also have to be students of the language that they're translating into because language changes. Did you? Language changes. They know it absolutely it does. Do you know there was a time when people said gay and they meant happy? Language changes. So because language changes, you have to be able to understand how that language changes and be able to translate that. So when we talk about if we're going to be tied to one translation or the other, I think there are some translations that may be better translated than others, but they are translations. So we use them as guides and we recognize that. So we got Galileo, we've got King James that started a translation um, that, that has affected us all the way until today. You see John Milton's name there. If you've ever heard of the book Paradise Lost uh, in 1665 it highlighted the sin of the first Adam that dragged us all into sin and pointed out that the, only the second Adam who is Jesus Christ used his freedom and offers us the opportunity to get back to paradise. We're going to roll through several of these because we've got a lot of ground to cover. The Mayflower Compact. The Pilgrims established the first democratic government And when they came and established this in 1620, I put one phrase because they're so often, I feel like a misunderstanding of American history is part of what is plaguing our understanding of politics today. This is from the Mayflower Compact. Having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. When they landed and established a government, that was in the charter. Now you say, well, that's not the Constitution. It's not the Constitution. But the people that originally came here as settlers, that is the reason that they came. So I think that's important. And then the next one, I think I put in here, I debated on whether or not to even list this, but I think it's important to list because I think it points out where we've come in society and how liberalism and secularism and progressivism and all the other isms have been very detrimental. You see that I listed the three, the first three universities on American soul. Harvard, Yale, Princeton. All of them, all of them founded as Bible colleges. They were founded because the founders came as educated people and understood that the nation could never be healthy without an informed theologically literate clergy. 
they found training for the ministry to be more important than establishing law schools, medical schools, teachers' colleges, anything else. The first college that was built was Harvard, and it was built on the premise that we want to train up ministers because we need healthy ministers to have healthy churches. And now we see so much of what has taken place over the course of the years um, with obviously all three of those universities, but we need to remember why some things happened the way they did. Blaise Pascal, a renowned scientist who was radically saved after a carriage accident and wrote in opposition to the rationalism of his day and started providing an apologetic defense. One of the people that helps us with, with apologetics and how that got started, um, Blaise Pascal. And then John Bunyan. Um, have you ever read, anybody in here ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Christian classic. In fact, it's the number one selling Christian piece of Christian literature, second only to the Bible. Um, and if you, it's short. It's a, it's a little book. In fact, it was required reading for me. I had to read it. I had to read Pilgrim's Progress in the sixth grade. Uh, I, I can remember it being assigned. And looking back on that now, um, you learn a little bit about John Bunyan. He was imprisoned for 12 years for preaching, quote-unquote, nonconformist ideas. And while he was there, he wrote his autobiography and he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And in, that, in those moments, what he did was he used the 12 years in prison to redeem the time. They imprisoned him, and, and I just love stories like this. They imprisoned him to shut him up. What do we see now is that centuries later, other than the Bible itself... What he did while he was in prison ended up being the greatest selling piece of Christian literature that's ever been sold. And sometimes when people try to get in the way of God and the gospel, it may seem like at the time that people are winning or causing it not to advance. But what we know is that the purposes and the plans of God are constantly working, even in the moments of history, that if you'd ask John Bunyan in the moment, do you see that there's a reason that you should be imprisoned? He would have obviously said no, but if he had never been imprisoned, he might never have written those two works. Um, I love this next story. Um, I don't know anybody that likes, that likes music and has no gift in it as much as me. I, 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 I love music. Um, I wish I had abilities, but I don't. But um, I love Isaac Watts' story. Um, if you, you, know, I, you may not know that you know Isaac Watts, but you do. Uh, Isaac Watts is responsible for hundreds of hymns. And the story is that when Isaac Watts would go to school, would go to church as a child, he hated it. Said he was bored out of his mind. He said, all the music is dull and boring. And what they would do is they would open a psalm and the preacher or the minister would chant one of the verses to the psalm and then the congregation would chant back the next verse to the psalm. So that would go back and forth and back and forth and that was the music. And so as a kid, he, would just, he just starts complaining. I don't know if any of you have kids that have ever done this before. Church is boring. I don't want to go to church. I don't like church. I don't want to go. Blah, 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 blah. But his daddy made an earth-shattering statement, and it changed Isaac Watts' life. He went out of church. He said, I don't want to go to church. It's boring. The music stinks. I don't like it. And his daddy said, well, if you think you could do so much better, why don't you write some songs? 
He said, yes, sir. And he went to his room and wrote a song and brought it back to his dad. And his dad said, this is good. And he brought it to the church. And they actually sang the song the next week on Sunday. And the church liked it so much that they asked him if he would, would he write another one for the next week? And they liked it again. And they said, would you write another one for next week? They did that for 222 weeks. And he wrote 222 hymns and they published it in a hymnal. And it became so popular that many churches only sang from what was known as the Watts Hymnal. Now, what's so incredible about this is, this is how widely distributed the Watts Hymnal became. That during the Revolutionary War, when they were running out of munitions... And they were running out of paper. If you're not familiar with firearms history, musket balls, the way they didn't have common cartridges. So what they would do is you would take, you would take gunpowder. Often they would be in muskets or flintlocks. And the gunpowder poured down the barrel. And then you would take a lead ball that had to be wrapped in, in paper. And then you would take that lead ball and the lead ball would be pushed down the barrel, pushed on. And then you had a hammer often on a flintlock where you had a little powder charge that was on the outside and you would cock that back and when you pulled the trigger, the flintlock would cause a spark which would ignite the powder on the inside of the barrel and then would blow that powder charge and the ball out the end of the barrel. So every time you fired, you had to do that over and over and over again. There were no cartridges. So one shot, you had to reload. Reloading could take minutes before you got to fire again. The guns were incredibly inaccurate because they did not have rifle bores in them, meaning that there was no spiral going down the barrel. It just it came out at one time. So unless you were at really close range, they didn't work really well. So as they're running out of paper to load up their muskets, you would often hear in the early colonies, you would hear the cry when the people would sing out and they would say, put the watts on them. Put the watts on them. And they ended up taking hymnals into the battlefield because they had run out of paper and tearing, hem tearing pages out of the Isaac Watts hymnals so that they could wrap the round balls in the muskets to put them down the barrels of the guns. And they'd say, fill them with watts, fill them with watts. And they would shoot, the, but they would fire it off. Over the course of time, not only are Isaac Watts' hymns still sung, but he started a revolution. If it wouldn't have been for people like him, you wouldn't have had people like Fanny Crosby that eventually would write hymns. And then you wouldn't have the Christian song movement of today where people understood that it is okay to sing a new song unto our God, a hymn of praise. And so ever since Isaac Watts, the church has been revolutionized in understanding that we do need to, to listen for new hymns and new music and new praise. So he set a, a standard there. I love his story. And then Jonathan Edwards. Um, some would argue uh, the, greatest, the greatest American preacher uh, over the course of the centuries. Uh, he was called the greatest mind, the greatest preacher, and the greatest theologian in American history. The Great Awakening began in the church he pastored in Massachusetts when he preached a series on, believe it or not, justification by faith. If you've been in this series for more than a couple of weeks, you probably remember that every time we talk about a revival breaking out, somebody preaches on justification by faith. Somebody picks up Romans. Somebody talks about original sin. Someone talks about the need for repentance. Someone points people to Jesus and talks about the need to be justification by faith, that it is by grace alone. And so he begins to preach this. 
The most famous sermon that's ever been preached on American soil was his, was his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut, um, one thing that's interesting that's, that's not on the paper here, but in studying church history, this was, um, as a preacher, and, and everyone's had this happen in, in some some form or fashion, if you've ever led a Bible study, or if you've ever led a small group, or you've ever sang, or, or even in a secular atmosphere, if you've ever done a presentation. And sometimes you walk away, and sometimes you go, man, I really worked hard on that. I, I, I thought it was good. I prayed about it. And I just don't know. Like, that just seemed to have fallen flat. Like, I don't know, maybe, you know, and then you kind of wonder, well, was it me? Did, 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 did I not prepare that well? Did I not communicate it well? Was it them? Like, what was, go, what was going on? The interesting thing about this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, the most well-known sermon ever preached on American soil, is he had actually preached that sermon before in the church that he pastored. And he writes about it and tells, it and tells the story much better than I can. But evidently, even back then... <clears throat> You preached and you stood outside and you greeted people as they walked by. And he talks about how that he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God and that they filed by one by one to tell him how wonderful his sermon was and there wasn't one response to it. Not one person gave their life to Jesus, no sign of repentance. And he said, um, but he was convinced that the Lord had placed this on his heart. And he preached the sermon again, and this time in Enfield, Massachusetts, when he preached it, he, in the middle of the sermon, people began to wail in the midst of the sermon. Before he could offer an invitation, people were at the altar, and they were calling out to God for repentance and giving their life to Christ. And I remember reading this 25 years ago, and it being making an impression on my life, because the Lord so used this, this story of Jonathan Edwards' life to convict my own ministry, that... It is the preacher's job to study hard. It is the preacher's job to communicate to the best of his ability. It's the preacher's job to pray, but it is God's job and the Holy Spirit's job to bring the conviction on the lives of people. And I have seen it time and time again. There are sometimes in people's life where they are hardened and unready for the gospel and the same message could take place again and absolutely revolutionize their life. Let me tell you about a mystery. Let me tell you a mystery of the pastorate. This is something that took me a long time, and I'm going to tell you now. Um, from Jonathan Edwards' life, there was something that I've noticed over the course of my ministry that's always baffled me until a few years ago, and the Lord finally gave me some, some clarity. I'd preach a sermon, and I cannot tell you. This is not once or twice. This is hundreds of times. I, I don't want to exaggerate, but maybe thousands of times. Someone will find me and tell me how much they appreciated the sermon, and then start to tell me how I was talking about such and such and such and such, and it so convicted them, and this happened, and they did this or this or this. I can't tell you how many times what they tell me I said I never said. I didn't say that. That wasn't what the sermon was about. And I'd walk away going... And I mean, I used to think, well, maybe they were listening to somebody else. Like that, I didn't talk about that. But I've begun to realize that when the Holy Spirit desires to work on a human being's heart, 
that oftentimes they will chisel away at things and begin to work on it because God is the one who can take the Word of God and begin to chip away. And often God will use the preached Word of God and the Word of God to work on a heart, and it is something that only He can do. So when we talk about revival, I've always been annoyed by this. I can't tell you, you know, especially pre-COVID, there were, people had revival meetings all the time. And people sometimes ask me, why doesn't your church have a, have a revival? I said, we're having one Sunday. Like, I'm, I'm not kidding you. I mean this. We're, we're going to have one Sunday. I'm going to preach. God's going to move. We're going to praise Him and glorify Him. And somebody's going to get saved. And people's lives are going to get changed. We're going to have a revival Sunday. And by the way, if you think you can schedule a revival, that's a meeting. We're going to have revival July 21st through... Tw- no, you're not. You're going to have a meeting at your church. Now, might revival break out? Maybe. But the only person that can schedule a revival is the Lord God Almighty. And so I ask him every day. I don't want to have a revival once a year. When I started in ministry, I said, God, I don't want to have revivals once a year or twice a year. And I don't want to have week-long revivals. I don't know that you're going to grant me this request. But it would be okay with you. I just assume have 52 a year. So when you get ready to come Sunday, just know we're planning a revival Sunday. I'm just going to be the, I'll be the guest preacher. Y'all come. John Wesley. Oh, man. John Wesley, Charles Wesley, and George Whitfield. Um, They were called, they were, the word Methodist came from these guys. Revival preachers, powerful revival preachers. The Lord used in powerful ways. So let's talk about Um, where the word Methodist came from. They called them Methodists because they stressed spiritual disciplines and believed that there were methods that you should go about to get closer to God, that you should be serious about prayer and serious about Bible study and serious about time alone with the Lord. And so part of their leadership and their preaching on something that is a major emphasis in the New Testament directly from John chapter 3, the new birth was this emphasis that brought about this great awakening that God used. And then finally, uh, you see a man's name there, David Brainerd. If you want to read a fantastic biography uh, on a Christian missionary, I would highly suggest Brainerd's biography. He set out to evangelize the native people of the new world, and his spiritual diary continues to be an inspiration today. Um, Often, so often, All we hear about is the brutalization of the American Indian. And certainly what we know about American history is that there are some dark spots. But what we also need to highlight is there were also some people like David Brainerd who gave their entire lives because they wanted to understand that part of the reason for coming to the new world wasn't just to stake their claim on land, but was also to spread the gospel and allow people that otherwise would have never come to know Christ to spread that, learning languages, translating translating the Bible into those languages, and traveling and preaching the gospel. So again, if I was, if there was a way for us to cover 200 years in half an hour, obviously I had to leave out a lot of names. We left out a lot of dates. But I think these are some important or major players in these two centuries. That If you want to go back and study more about any one of these individual lives, I would challenge you um, to be able to, to do that, to go back and to look. Um, you can also, um, one of the things that helps me out a lot, um, I told you 
music I think is important, I often do my Bible study with a hymnal right beside me. Because sometimes I'll think of a song, um, a song come to my mind, and often when it does, I'll go to the hymn and read all the stanzas of the hymn. Um, sometimes I even sing them. That's none of your business. That's between me and the Lord. But I do think that that, that is a really important um, in understanding church history and understanding what God has done throughout the age, I think it could be really, really helpful sometimes to pick some of these people, to read biographies and to understand history and to know that we are part of the lineage. We are part of a great chain. We are sons and daughters of God, but the baton has been passed. Somebody told you about Jesus or you wouldn't be here. Somebody loved you enough to tell you about Jesus. I want you to think about that person right now. Maybe as your mama or your daddy. Maybe you had a family member or maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a co-worker. Maybe it's a pastor or a youth minister. Somebody told you about Jesus. You know what's pretty incredible? Somebody had to tell that person about Jesus. Because if nobody had ever told them about Jesus, they'd have never told you about Jesus. And somebody had to tell the person that told you about Jesus, about Jesus, and that person had to have somebody tell them about Jesus. And so what we recognize is that it is absolutely imperative that we understand our call and that we are here for this moment. Um, we, As you know, obviously, we're at the 17th and 18th centuries. We're getting really close. Uh, we're almost caught up, right? And then we're going to begin a brand new series after that, and we're going to spend 10 weeks on the five solas. I told you to do a little homework on what the five solas are. We're going to spend two weeks on each of the solas. And so uh, coming out of that, I'm really excited about that study as well. So you continue to study, look up some of these folks, and uh, enjoy learning about that. I'm excited for you to be here for our revival this coming Sunday. I have told you about that. We're going, to have, we're going to have a great day. We're going to finish up 1 Thessalonians. Uh, it is a powerful, powerful pa passage of Scripture that God is going to use this coming Sunday, um, Sunday night. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled. Um, we have sold out. We have sold out of tickets um, for our Sunday night event. We are excited. We've got 400 men and boys that are going to be here Sunday night. I'm thrilled about that. I think it's going to be a great night. We're looking forward to that. And so uh, we're, we're definitely some great, great things are happening. You plan on being here and being a part of that. I want to pray for you. And then after I pray together, I want to give you some time to fellowship together. Obviously, your, your uh, Sunday school folders are out there. You've got some time to meet uh, in your small groups. And I want to encourage you to remember that on Wednesday nights, we provide some lists for you, a, a list of people with prayer needs, people in your small group that may have needs, guests that have been here, those are just great, simple things that you can do to contact people, to let them know you love them, to let them know you miss them, to let them know you're praying for them, and it just makes a difference. I told you that we had Summit 101 um, several weeks ago, and I told you when I left here I was going to run over there because I had that. And I told you at the end that one of the things that we do is we go around the room and to get people to tell why it is that God, what about, why First Baptist Summit? You could be anywhere or you could be nowhere, but you're here. Why First Baptist Summit? And I love the fact that 
from, from people talking about the worship services to engaging in the Word of God to the small groups um, to, being, to the music ministry to the children's ministry to the preschool to children and youth and all the things that are going on. But one of the things that is always such a blessing to me is when I hear them say, we just want you to know that from the moment we walked in, we could just tell that people there loved each other. I, they loved each other. They were friendly to us. And people just reached out from the moment we came. We heard from people, and we really felt like people wanted us there. How simple is that? That's not earth-shattering. People wanted us at that church. We want people here. And we want people that are hurting to know we love them and that we miss them. That's just part of ministry. And we want to do that as ministers. But one of the great things about this church is you're a group of people that ministers to each other in a way that I can't even explain. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm really proud of you for that. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you that in the course of church history that you've called us for such a time as this. So God, may we stand strong. We recognize that we stand on the shoulders of others, but God, mostly we recognize that we stand here because of the strong foundation that is Jesus Christ. So Lord, we're thankful for that solid rock, and Lord, may we build on that and build on it well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.